Hi, this is Gary Meese, back again with The Case Against. It's been quite a while. My apologies. I've had a lot going on, and I'm going to continue to have a lot going on, but uh, I thought I could procrastinate on this much longer without totally losing the thread. I want to get back into the book, uh, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, uh, which is a condensed, revised version of t two books I wrote called Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go. They're all available on Kindle. Um, and rather than getting into some extraneous uh, matters, I mean, there's been a lot going on in the, le in the legal field, in the criminal trial field since the last time I talked, but I'm just and not and in the parole system, etc, etc. I'm not going to get into any of that today. I just uh, I'm just going to try to plow ahead with doing my allotted task here. Self-assigned, but allotted. And uh, so we're going to talk some about the uh, the violent history of Jesse Miskelly Jr. Now, John Douglas, in one of his books, he focused in on the West Memphis Three case. He claimed that none of the three had any history of violence. And the fact is, is there's been uh, a number there have been a number of episodes uh, recorded in which Jesse Miskelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles were involved in various forms of violent violence against others and also visited upon themselves in some of the cases, two of the cases. Uh, I'm going to particularly talk today. I'm going to go ahead and just get into it. Uh, even more than Damien Eccles, Jesse Miskelly Jr. was linked to violent episodes often aimed at children. John Earl Persecki Jr., 14, told police he'd been attacked by Miskelly in January 1992. We heard someone coming up, said Persecki's handwritten statement. We tried to hide. Damien Jason, Jesse, Buddy, and that would be Buddy Lucas, and four other boys were with them, and so Jesse shoved me against the side. Jesse took a knife out of his pocket and put a knife to my throat, and he said, would you like to be dead? And so he shoved the knife harder, and so he put the knife up, and then Jesse hit me, and Buddy too. Damien and Jason and the other boys were still on the railroad tracks, and there he was yelling at me, and then they all left. I walked home, I was coughing up blood. A girl who had been at that scene, Tiffany Allen, 13, described another violent attack by Miskelly. He had been spreading a rumor around that he was having sexual intercourse with me to all these people and I confronted him with it and he kept saying all this stuff so I slapped him. For a year I didn't hear anything from him. 
somebody said that he'd been looking for me. And one day I was walking through the park and he was at the road and he came up to me. He started running at me and my boyfriend stepped in front of him. He hit Carl and then he hit me and we started to walk away and he started coming after us again so we ran until one of my friend's parents came and got us and took me to my house. She had a busted lip and made a legal complaint dated March 12, 1993, which is roughly six or seven weeks before Jesse Miskelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles killed uh, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch on May 5, 1993 in a secluded area, a secluded wooded area in West Memphis known as Robin Hood Hills. The boys were eight years old. Uh, Tiffany's mother, Gayla Allen, went to the Miskelly home after the incident. Jesse Jr. ran out the front door while she was knocking on the back door. When she returned later, she said, okay, I knock on the door. Jesse Sr. was sitting in there and he, he said that he just could not do anything with his son. A close friend of Miss Kelly's, Dennis Carter, told police that Jesse liked to fight, giving as examples an attack on Tiffany and another attack four or five months before, which consisted of a girl about five or six was throw, throwing rocks hit Miss Kelly. He chased the girl and then he threw a rock that hit her in the head, said Carter, and laughed when she started crying. The girl's mother called police who talked to Miss Kelly. Miss Kelly, quote, told his father about it, but his dad didn't say anything to him about it. Carter described Miss Kelly's home life. States that he does not like his stepmother, uh, Lee Rush, who was not really his stepmother, they weren't married at all. Uh, Miss Jesse Sr. and Lee Rush weren't married, just to clarify. States that she stays drunk all the time and so does Jesse's dad. States that about two months ago he was spending the night with Jesse. When they came into the trailer around 6.30 p.m., Lee was passed out on the couch wearing nothing but her panties. Jesse went and told his dad, who didn't say anything. Dennis states that Jesse drank a lot and smoked pot when he could get it. States that he also saw Jesse huffing, uh, sniffing gas about 20 times. Also saw Jesse take many thins, got high from those. End of statement. When he was about 11, Miss Kelly was accused of hitting a girl in the head with a rock or brick after he began beating her abusive boyfriend and the girl jumped in to defend the boyfriend. Even earlier, Miss Kelly stabbed a fourth grade classmate in the mouth with a pencil. His problems dated to early childhood. Counseling and hospitalization were recommended, but there was never follow through. The book Blood of Innocence described a June 1987 report from a social worker quoting Shelby Miss Kelly, his stepmother. He gets so mad he's capable of hurting someone. 
quote, he had a habit of punching out windows, once requiring several stitches to his hand. When blood was found on a shirt after his arrest, Miskelly said it was his own, shed after punching out soda bottles. Shelby had told the social worker, I don't think he can control his temper. He needs some help. Years later, a famed FBI profiler weighed in on the case. I get into it here. In Law and Disorder, John Douglas wrote, Damien and Jason had no indicative violence in their past, and while Jesse was known for a hot temper, he channeled his aggressions into pursuits such as wrestling. In sum, I found nothing in the behavioral backgrounds of Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, or Jesse Miskelly to suggest that any were guilty of murder. Douglas, hired by the defense, made no mission, mention of their violent histories. Douglas did not respond to questions I posed to him about the case. Admittedly, he gets a lot of emails so forth, but I attempted to contact the man, never got anything back from him. Um, my next chapter is going to be a description of what went on the day of the killings. I'm not going to get into that because it's a, a long chapter. I'm going to save that for another time. Um, I was having some technical difficulties earlier tonight and really thought about scrapping even this attempt, but I decided that I would go ahead and do that, uh, not using my preferred equipment, but some uh, secondary fallback equipment. Uh, sound quality is probably, I don't think it's ever that great and it's probably not that good. Oh, since I've only been talking for about 10 minutes, uh, I'm going to briefly give an update on the brouhaha over the West Memphis Three um, so-called missing evidence. You know, the background on this is is uh, they uh, Patrick Binka, who's one of the defense attorneys. Uh, was inquiring about the state of the evidence because well, this actually dates back to Bob Ruff. Bob Ruff came up with this goofy idea that he could just go to uh, Scott Ellington, who was the prosecuting attorney up until this last year, and and require, get the evidence from the West Memphis Three and have it retested using so-called new technology. MVAC technology, which is kind of a vacuum, a wet vacuum type process. Uh, the pro the it wasn't widely available when the West Memphis Three were uh, uh, released on a guilty plea, an Al Alfred plea, but a guilty plea in 2011. But the, it was not new then. It, the MBAC technology had been around for several years. Uh, I think with a little bit of research, the defense attorneys, who were among the highest paid defense attorneys in the country and were, you know, had, I'm sure they all had huge staffs. They could have checked it out to see what the very latest 
DNA technology was. They didn't use the MVAC technology then, though, as I say, it appears to have been available to them at the time. I don't know what the exact conditions would have been for using it. Uh, maybe, you know, it's possible, it's possible, I guess, that maybe they contacted MVAC and MVAC said, no, sorry, I'm not going to, we're not ready to have you use this. I just don't see that happening. The technology been around for a while. So anyway, um, you know, the, the West Memphis Three passed up the opportunity to present their so-called new evidence um, to the courts. It was, uh, the hearing was set for December. They took a, the guilty plea in August as a deadline was nearing for coming up with these results from the DNA testing and according to some media accounts they really didn't have anything despite the impression that uh, Eccles and some others continue to put out into the media that you know and you'll see it even in news story there's a lot of news stories that seem to sort of suggest if you read it you don't know anything about the case you would think that new evidence somehow forced their them to take this <laughs> got their release though it was a guilty plea for times and with release for time served 10 years of uh, probation but uh, you would think that based on those media reports that the West Memphis three had some new DNA information well if they did it apparently wasn't information that was going to help them now I'm not going to speculate what the information actually was because I don't know. The West Memphis Three do know or should know. It was provided to their attorneys and I'm certain they had access to that information. Uh, Lori Davis said she can't find the records. Uh, perhaps she left it in that notorious storage shed in Arkansas that somebody bought up after they abandoned it. <laughs> Who knows? I, that wasn't certainly wasn't on the list of things that were sold. Uh, so anyway, Bob Ruff came up with this idea that they could use this MVAC technology, and you know he sort of chases around the West Memphis Three, and you know it's not as if he has a real reasoned discussion with any of them about retesting the DNA basically bangs on Jesse Miskelly's door and says is it okay if we do more DNA testing and Jesse who's obviously doesn't want to talk to the guy says oh yeah sure go ahead Eccles says it's okay Jason says it's okay but there's a notable lack of enthusiasm in their responses I don't think they think they're going to find anything that's really going to help them what they do find is whenever you know they kept asking they harassed Scott Ellington yet again he's been harassed uh, uh, quite a bit back in 2011 by supporters to get the West Memphis three out and he you know Terry Hobbs admitted in a recent interview uh, he was told by Ellington that the reason they wanted to release the West work out this plea deal and release the West Memphis Three was because 
they were tired of dealing with the case. Now I've heard variations on that a number of times, and you know, honestly, that there were other considerations. There was money, money involved, potential uh, liability for the state if they were exonerated. Uh, you know, the, the amounts of potential awards are probably overstated, but certainly possible. Who knows what a jury's going to do? Maybe they would give them sixty million dollars. Who knows? Probably not, though. If they actually saw the evidence, they probably won't give them anything. And uh, the let's see where else where was I going with this? So uh, Ellington was, you know, basically, and there was a political some political considerations for Ellington and uh, and for Dustin McDaniel. And there were also just some crony, there was a little bit of crony, quite a bit of cronyism going on because Patrick Binka, who was this defense attorney, and Dustin McDaniel, who was the attorney general at the time, are apparently best buds. They're law partners now. And um, they knew each other from law school. So they worked out a cozy little deal between the two of them. Uh, Dustin McDaniel certainly had no great investment in, uh, it wasn't going to hurt him uh, and his p political ambitions to have the West Memphis Three released. And his political ambitions did come tumbling down. He was hoping to run for governor, but a sex scandal shot that all to hell. Uh, Scott Ellington was planning on run, uh, running against a Republican, a fairly new Republican, I think he was in his first term then, a new Republican congressman in, uh, uh, from the Jonesboro, the district over there, the Jonesboro area, which includes also includes West Memphis, the, the congressional district does. And uh, he was going to run as a Democratic candidate. Uh, understand that uh, the Democratic Party holds a great deal of power st still in Arkansas, particularly in local elections and even in the uh, the larger elections, uh, you know, the national elections, but uh, s certainly for uh, races like Democrat, uh, uh, like congressmen and senators, it certainly plays a part. So the local races are almost all Democrat in West Memphis, <laughs> but they're not... I assure you, they're not the typical Democrats that you would see in Washington D.C. They're very, they're much more akin to what you would expect out of a Republican crowd of candidates, for the most part. Uh, anyway, uh, there were a lot, a lot of considerations, but partially Scott Ellington wanted to get the case out of his hair, and he thought this was a great way to do this. I don't think he realized the implications for this, uh, which have followed him down for over 10 years. And he's known primarily as the weasel who let the West Memphis Three go. Or even the West Memphis Three supporters don't like Scott Ellington. He won no particular friends from uh, his actions or his inaction. He really just didn't want to deal with the case he admitted later he hadn't looked close, hadn't really looked at the case closely. Um, it's unclear, but it seems that he did not 
know what the DNA results said when he agreed to this plea deal. And, you know, he really just didn't care. He's an ambitious man. He's now a, a, a judge. And, uh, and he's also weak, uh, feckless, and uh, an opportunist. He should do well in the political sphere. In fact, I think he's done pretty well. Anyway, uh, Bob Ruff, you know, decided he was going to do the same sort of harassing thing that was done back in 2000, not just 2011, but for several years before that about the West Memphis Three, you know, get supporters all riled up about it. And uh, I think he succeeded to some extent in that what happened to Scott Ellington just shut down communication with Ruff. So Ruff, Ruff gets to p play the, a victim in this and get, gets on his podcast claims it's Scott and claims correctly that Scott Ellington's not getting communicating with him. And actually the whole attitude became uh, with the prosecuting attorney and uh, West Memphis Police Department is they their attitude seems to have been they just really don't want uh, to deal with this. They don't they haven't been particularly responsive to requests for uh, information about the evidence, but at one point uh, Kent Cressman, who was the new prosecuting attorney for that district, had told, apparently told uh, Binka that there, he'd understood that maybe some evidence was missing, that there had been a fire at some point in the past. And, uh, and the mayor, Marco McClendon, the mayor of West Memphis, also made a similar statement. Now, I, I've met Marco McClendon. I personally like the guy, but I wouldn't use him as a credible source on this kind of information. He, just the fact that he's the mayor really doesn't make him a credible source. He didn't, he, you know, he's prone to shoot his mouth off without considering the consequences. Uh, so anyway, this is this went on for a while. Binka eventually filed for freedom of information uh, under the Freedom of Information Act. He wanted to get some information from the West Memphis Police Department. The, the prosecuting attorney says, "Look, I don't have the evidence. I don't know what happened to the evidence. It's in the. You really need to talk to the West Memphis Police Department." So Binka talks to the police department, and apparently they just simply don't pay a whole lot of attention to what Binka's got to say. Um, you know, they probably get phone calls, emails, etc., etc., on a regular basis that are an, probably are very annoying and clog up, take up a lot of work time, and getting nowhere from supporters. Making some of whom make all sorts of wild claims that are totally unsubstantiated. Uh, so this went on for quite some time, and Binka filed uh, filed a, a filed for uh, against the West Memphis Police Department about the violation of the. 
Freedom of Information Act. Now, the West Memphis Three had 10 years to, if they wanted evidence retested, they could at least, I don't know who else is really even would have standing in this, but say they came to the courts and, and filed a motion for retesting of evidence, we could at least say, yeah, they made an attempt to have the evidence retested, but they've made no such attempt. And uh, part of the conditions of their parole is, what they, that, is that they wouldn't make such attempts. Part of the plea deal was that this case is essentially over with other than the period of probation. We're not dealing with any further legal matters here. It's, it's, it's been resolved. But, you know, it's come back. Uh, Eccles and his supporters, Mara Leverett, Lonnie Sowery, the rest of the hacks and the flax uh, decided that they this was a way to drum up uh, anger among supporters. And, you know, I suppose it succeeded to some degree. I know, I know Eccles was... Uh, he had a fundraising campaign on GoFundMe, I think, and he was trying to raise five, oh, a petition. It was a petition. He was trying to raise 5,000 signatures. It wasn't GoFundMe. It was a petition. He was trying to raise 5,000 signatures to support his efforts because he could use, if he got to the 5,000 mark, then he could, he could, flog that around the media as all the great support he had. I haven't looked in the last week or two, but the last time I looked, it was up, you know, he had over 3,000, but he didn't have 5,000, and this petition had been out there for quite some time. Uh, and, you know, he had um, mentioned it. It wasn't just secret. I mean, he put it on, I know he tweeted about it at least once perhaps more than once, and I assume that some of the usual supporters retweeted it. So, you know, I, I don't know that the West Memphis Three have this widespread support that a lot of people seem to think they have. What they have are a lot of very vocal supporters and very obnoxious report supporters, by the way, and, and mostly very ignorant and downright stupid report supporters, though there are some intelligent people who make a reasonable argument that uh, you know, such things as I, something I really don't disagree with is that the case with uh, Jason Baldwin was very, very weak. Yeah, it was. I'm really surprised the, the jury convicted him on the basis of what was presented in court, but they did, and they had a legal basis for doing so. It wasn't as if they just arbitrarily uh, convicted this guy for no reason whatsoever. But a lot of it hinged on a, a deathbed confession, and not a deathbed confession, a jailhouse con, uh, confession, that, you know, the, you have to sort of take those with a grain of salt, and then there, there was some fiber evidence that seemed to link to Jason's house, but I wouldn't convict anybody on the basis of that fiber evidence ever, even though it's... It is physical evidence. There is physical evidence in the case, but there's not much. So, uh, anyway, the supporters, you know, are, 
aren't there aren't that many supporters who are even willing to go to the trouble just to sign a petition for Damien. Anyway, so we had this motion filed in Arkansas courts. It just sort of sat there for a bit, and then uh, Binka got, I guess he was tired of, you know, stuff in courts takes forever, if you've ever experienced that. Uh, you know, I, I unfortunately, I've experienced it. Uh, you know, I've, I mean, I've actually watched how long it takes to resolve any number of criminal matters, and it takes forever. And I've been involved in various civil matters, and it just takes forever. Um, he filed, um, he sent a notice off to uh, West Memphis Police Department that they'd violated their, uh, the, provisions for the Freedom of Information Act and he wasn't getting a response. Now, the West Memphis Police Department, if they were found in violation of that, somebody I guess somewhere could face some penalties, but you'd really have to pin down who, who did what when which would be very difficult. Uh, and basically what we're talking about, this whole thing with the so-called the quest for the missing evidence really comes down to whether the West Memphis the Police Department furnishes, was going to furnish some sort of bureaucratic paperwork about the Freedom of Information, according to the Freedom of Information Act, to Patrick Binka so he could determine how the evidence had been handled over the years and if some was destroyed. It wasn't going to provide the evidence to him. It was not going to be retested. It was not going to take the case anywhere except for the, the one place that Marl Everett and Damien Eccles and Lonnie Sowery wanted to take it, which was to try to embarrass and harass the West Memphis Police Department. I have to tell you, I think the police department should have just responded, said, you know, we don't. Ha if they don't have the record, just say we don't have them. Or if they do, say, get somebody, you know, spend a morning or a whole day or how long it takes. Go ahead and just get it done and get it over there. Get it off to them and let's just get this over with. Uh, I don't think there's any significant evidence that's been destroyed, but I don't know. I really don't know the state of the evidence in the West Memphis Three case. Now, um, we do know that some evidence didn't survive even to the point that, uh, for instance, the paper bags in which a lot of the evidence were stored, in theory, might have had some residual DNA. Well, those paper bags were destroyed, but the defense knew that back in 2011, and they chose not to make a big deal out of it. It certainly didn't, uh, uh, you know, they didn't do anything with it. And, you know, uh, there are provisions. It's a 10-year-old case. There are provisions that some certain classes of cases, they're supposed to preserve the evidence. And the West Memphis Police Department Perhaps they've made their best effort to do that, and perhaps not. I, I doubt seriously if they just consciously said, let's just destroy all the West Memphis Three evidence because we're tired of hearing about it. And that would be up to the level of a 
criminal charge probably for somebody if somebody was could actually be that responsibility could actually be pinned to anybody but it wouldn't be a major criminal charge and it would still would not resolve anything uh, anything in the case uh, concerning the evidence and it would not bring about retesting of the evidence so uh, Marl Everett Lonnie Sowery with Damien Eccles retweeting and Jason Baldwin's being surprisingly silent on all this uh, retweeted that uh, tweeted out that uh, they were facing a uh, 30-day uh, deadline to come up with this information or an explanation of why they don't what they don't have and there was no court order she made the, she repeated that error again and again and never made any attempt to try to address it or straighten it out the court records don't show there might be I haven't looked today maybe there's a court order that's popped up in the last Two weeks because I haven't checked it probably in two weeks but there wasn't a court order when she was uh, uh, tweeting about it and all it was was uh, a, a citation from Binka to the, to uh, the West Memphis Police Department putting him on notice that they were in violation of the Freedom of Information Act Etc. Etc. That's not a court order. It was filed with the courts. It's not even clear that it was ever served. Now, what's happened since is supposedly they've reached after some months, some months of an impasse. They've reached a point where. There was some dialogue going on between Binka and the West Memphis Police Department and supposedly the defense attorneys are going to get to see the evidence. It's not really, you know, it, this is from Mara Leverett, so it's not particularly credible based on her past record with this, but apparently there's some sort of agreement between uh, Binka and the West Memphis Police Department that he's going to get to see get some sort of satisfaction about what's actually there as far as evidence is concerned. Is he actually going to <coughs> get to physically examine it? You know, I'm sorry, he's certainly not going to be able to, you know, hold it in his hands and all that. They're not going to let him do that, but is, is he actually going to get to see it or is, or is he just going to be presented some records about how the evidence was handled? It's not really clear. And, you know, some of the evidence in the case, uh, you know, case files are public record. You can go in there and check that. Check, uh, I understand they have some provisions there about you have to be an Arkansas resident or a have an Arkansas resident vouch for you to be able to go in there and look at that evidence. Uh, I haven't tested it out since I moved out of the area, so, you know, I don't know. That that's the case I haven't heard that clarified at all but it is public record and certainly an, an Arkansas resident Bink is an Arkansas resident could go in there to the West Memphis Police Department and request to see the case files and they would be required to present it to him back in 2013 
uh, Pam Hicks, uh, with, uh, and uh, I think John Mark Byers was added on to the, this suit, but she was suing the West Memphis Police Department for access to the evidence. Uh, some of this was somewhat understandable. She wanted to see these reminders of her son, uh, you know, his shirts and his jeans and so forth. Uh, and they had some court hearings and uh, her request was turned down, which tells you something about who gets to see this evidence. This is the mother of a murdered child in a case that has been resolved with people pleading guilty and people being convicted. But she, uh, she was not, she and Mark Byers were not allowed to just go survey all this evidence. I don't, so I don't know what's going to happen with Binka. <coughs> Perhaps he has better standing than Pam Hicks did at the time. Um, and, but the, Binka and, I mean, um, what that really happened at that hearing was they had a hearing that got a lot of media out. I was there. We got a lot of media out, and they used that as a platform to, to set forth the for perp theory, which the court refused to hear, but uh, this was all, again, this was a very similar sort of thing where it's all stuff that's played out in the media without any kind of real legal ramifications. They claimed that, um, oh, they didn't claim, they showed uh, some affidavits from two men who claimed they had information about the so-called for perp theory, which would involve Buddy Lucas, uh, LG, the now departed L.G. Hollingsworth Jr., David Jacoby, and Terry Hobbs partying down in the woods, and the boys, you know, in some sort of gay drug fest, and the boys coming upon them, and then they, the boys being killed because of this. Now, there's no evidence that that happened. There's evidence that that didn't happen. Uh, Jacoby was married at the time and he was home that evening, uh, except for when he was riding around with Terry Hobbs looking for, uh, he wasn't home all evening obviously, he was home, with, but you know, uh, we know that uh, Terry Hobbs was placed at a number, uh, you know, Jacoby was his primary alibi witness, but we know, for instance, he was he was seen by other parties that evening. Uh, uh, Buddy Lucas, they were having some sort of family barbecue or something, and he'd gone over to Jesse Miskelly's house to offer him some chicken, and Jesse was was gone, which is significant. Uh, and, you know, that's not strongly corroborated, but it is anecdotal. And then uh, L.G. Hollingsworth, <laughs> there's all sorts of crazy stuff about what the L.G. Hollingsworth may or not, may have not been doing that night and the subsequent night. But uh, we know he was seen at a laundromat later that evening, you know, all spruced up for some bizarre reason. Who knows what was going on with that kid? The police talked to him over and over again and could never get his story straight. 
which made him very suspicious. And he was friends with, not really friends with Damien, but he was a acquaintance. He was a friend of me, I guess. He he was an acquaintance with uh, Damien Eccles, who seemed to have a thing for Do- Domine Tear, uh, Damien Damien's girlfriend, who supposedly was also his cousin, even though she really wasn't. Um, Anyway, they they supposedly did all this. Well, the two guys that were uh, making this allegation were both, and this was not put out in the media. Uh, I, the, the story about the allegations were put out in the media, but the status of the two men was not put out in the, me- the media. They were, except I, I wrote it up, and maybe a few other people picked up on it, but... For the most part, they did not look at who was making the allegations, and the allegations were being made by two convicted rapists who were both crim- career criminals in, in the, who were in the Arkansas prison at the time. Haven't che- Again, I haven't checked <coughs> very, very recently, but you know, one got transferred over to Texas where he was facing some additional rape charges. And the other was, uh, as far as I know, is still in uh, Arkansas, you know, Arkansas prisons on those same charges, and they're, they were serving very, very long sentences, and they have multiple crimes in their records besides that. So, not the most credible witnesses, and with no other corroboration, and a lot of evidence suggesting that there was nothing to it at all. That's the 2013 hearing. Anyway, um, and we haven't heard a whole lot about that since then. Um, the the uh, so Binka and the West Memphis Police Department apparently reached an agreement that he's going to be able to look at the evidence. Uh, who knows what the result of that will be? Maybe that this will all quietly resolve itself in that way. But I want to reiterate, the West Memphis Police, the West Memphis Three have never sought retesting for DNA of that evidence. Nothing that's happening here should result in the retesting of that evidence. You never know what a court's going to do, but I just don't, I, it, there doesn't seem to be any legal path to having that evidence retested. I'm not against the retesting of the evidence in theory because, frankly, I think there's a good chance we're going to come up with some DNA of the three killers if they do very, if they retest everything. And if, you know, the more selective you are about testing from the defense standpoint, uh, you know, if they decide not to uh, retest the semen stained genes of Stevie Branch. That Jason J, uh, Jesse Miskelly described how uh, Eccles wiped himself off after ejaculating. Uh, you know, if they decide not to test that, then I don't know if they can get good DNA results from that. Apparently, genes are very. It was hard to do at the time, and maybe this MVAC is much better. Maybe they could link that decisively to Damian Eccles. Maybe not. Maybe it. Maybe it's somebody else, though I don't think it is. I have no reason to think it is. But the point being is, is you know, if they don't test that, then 
It's just a question that'll always sit there. Whose semen stain was that? Because it almost certainly wasn't eight-year-old Stevie Branches. Um, so, you know, who knows what the final result of this is going to be. But what has happened is that Marl Everett, Bonnie Sowery, Damien Eccles, and Bob Ruff have all been able to make a big deal out of the whole thing. And it really, it's a whole lot of smoke, but there's really no fire there. Anyway, that's, I didn't know I was going to get into all that, but I'm glad I did. Thank you. Uh, I hope to resume podcasting a little more regularly. I'm not going to make any promises. I do have a lot of things. I'm not going to get into details about m- why you know I've I have I've had some reasons for not podcasting, and uh, I'm not going to get get into all those reasons because frankly it's my personal business, <laughs> and I you know considering the crowd that may or may not listen to this I just assume not throw put my personal business out there. But uh, anyway I'm doing well, and I hope you're doing well, and I will talk to you again.